chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, we will begin reading in verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner, you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to the Jews, or to the Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. My guess is there are some folks in here who read the title for the sermon tonight, Navigating the Gray Areas of Christian Living. And your first thought was, what gray areas? I know I've got some black and white folks in the crowd, right? You have a pastor who very much prefers the black and white absolutes. I know this way is right, this way is wrong. Let's be honest, we really do wish it were that simple, right? That that everything we came across, that there was a very clearly marked path, that there was a very obvious sense, yes, one way is right, one way is wrong, there's black and there's white. Now, in a lot of issues, that is absolutely the case, right? It is absolutely true. The Bible is full of black and white issues. When I say navigating the gray areas, I'm not talking about areas where we compromise on sin. I'm not talking about areas where we compromise on what I would call essential and critical doctrine. Instead, to say we're navigating the gray areas of Christian living is to recognize not every ethical situation we face has a clear, explicit chapter and verse. And that's why, you know, the church throughout her history has wrestled with some issues, especially the modern church. I mean, if I were to ask you, what what are some areas that people would define as gray? 
I can tell you probably the biggest one that is an ongoing discussion, depending on what circle you're in, I guess, but for sure in our context, what do you think would be the biggest gray area that is discussed? Anybody want to hazard a guess at this? You don't want to be wrong, do you? Drinking. Absolutely. Alcohol. Absolutely. And historically, especially in American culture, and especially over the last 100 years. Now, I know, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, nope, no, that's, that's black and white. And what we mean by that one being a gray area, there's not a verse that says, and thou shalt never have any drink in any form, anything that has ever been fermented, not even NyQuil. I mean, that would make it easy, wouldn't it? If that verse were in there, and I've looked for it, I've even tried to translate it myself, all right? I've, it's not there that says exactly that. You better not be eating fruitcake, all right? In other words, you know, so there's a lot of, that, what do you do with the issue of alcohol? So this, is, this has been a gray area for some. There are some then who would say, uh, well, it, you know, it depends on why you're drinking and what you're drinking. Because the Bible's not silent about alcohol. I would add, just by the way, my own two cents worth here. The Bible never says anything really positive about it. But anyway, all right, I digress, okay? So that, that would be one. If you go back a few years, there, there would be uh, a couple of other issues that may surprise you. Did you know there are churches that had all kinds of discussion about what to do about playing cards? Do any of you, have any of you ever come from a tradition or a, remember years ago when folks would have frowned upon the playing of cards? All right, anybody remember that? What about the rolling of dice? Because it's a game of what? Chance. I remember at my previous church, I had a discussion with a lady who was very concerned for me because in a sermon I had mentioned, I've got this weird thing that I like to do. I like to do the publisher's clearinghouse. I still do, by the way. All right, I mean, I do. And this lady came up to me afterwards very concerned, said, Pastor, it's gambling. That was back before the Internet, right? You had to put a stamp on that thing, all right? So you're gambling. You're playing a game of chance. Is this, is this allowed? Are you allowed to do this kind of thing? Gray area. Now, in maybe a bit more contemporary language, there are realities that we face that don't have clear chapter and verse. For example, what we do with technology. In other words, there's not a, you know, there's not a, and I've looked for this one too, there's not a verse that says Facebook has almost zero value in culture today. All right, I mean, I've looked for that one, it's not there either, okay? So, what do we do? Because there is very bad behavior on Facebook, right? It can also be used in very positive ways. What about Twitter? So, in other words, there are gray areas. Here's another one. What about money? So, no, Pastor, money's black and white. Well, not exactly. In other words, as a church, we've decided we give our money to the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, that's not required. We're not saying that every other church that doesn't is outside of God's will. Well, I may be inclined, but I know it's not really that way, right? I mean, we're not really suggesting that's the only way that you can give money. What about issues of debt? you got some folks who are very, very focused and would say, you know, that, that debt is always wrong all the time. And, of course, you'd have folks who are on the other side. And, and they, would, they would draw on Scripture to say, well, this is the picture that is presented on this issue, or this is a picture that's presented. In other words, what we have to do 
on some of these issues of Christian living, inevitably you and I will come across ethical situations. When I say ethical, again, I'm not saying the clear black and white ones. I mean, you know, a situation in which you don't have a clear chapter and verse, but you want to make a biblically informed decision. What do I do about this? And this can become particularly difficult when it looks like there are three or four options and potentially all three or four of them could be right. How do I make a decision here? This this becomes a bit more challenging when we consider then the nature of the Bible itself. Some people have described the Bible in various ways that I think is not helpful. Like some folks have said, the Bible is an encyclopedia. Well, no, it's not. How many of you still have encyclopedias at home? Sets of encyclopedias? No, you don't want to admit it, do you? So, how many of you used to have a set of encyclopedias at home? How many of you would say those encyclopedias had more pages than your Bible? Yes, yes, that's true. It's not a trick question. In other words, the Bible's not an encyclopedia. I know you struggle reading the book in a year, but it's really not that long. All right? In all honesty, it's not that long of a book. So it can't be an encyclopedia because the Bible doesn't even tell me everything there is to know about God. Instead, the Bible tells me everything God thinks I should know about him. John himself said, if I were to write everything that I could write about Jesus, there are not enough books in the world to hold it. It's not an encyclopedia. Some may say, well, the Bible's a textbook. Well, that's not a good analogy either, because it's not like we're doing Jesus 101, right? It's not like this is, you know, just the summation of, a, of, of an academic focus on who God is. How about this one? The Bible is a manual for life. I've used that. Now, it's not necessarily entirely wrong, but here's the problem. What do you use a manual for? Well, let's say you get out in your car, there's a light that's flashing on your dashboard, you don't know what it is, what do you do? You look in the manual. You look to see what this light means. And then you ignore it. Right, Denny? Then we just ignore it. Isn't that what we usually do? Yeah, all right. So, but this, this, is what hap- this is what a manual is for. And so some folks take the Bible, they've got an issue, they look at a concordance, and they look it up in the Bible, and sometimes you're disappointed because it doesn't say what you hope it would say. So here's what we've got to do with the Bible. We've got to discern that, in fact, this divine revelation from God is really a book that is designed to give us what is the picture of the world, the picture of our lives, how everything about our life should be framed and formed by the gospel, and how our decisions then are made within that context. And so what the Bible does for us is it gives us examples of making decisions that then we can unearth principles that apply to all kinds of situations. Now you may hear that and think, what are you talking about? 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through chapter 11, verse 1, is a perfect example of this, of the genius of the Bible. That what Paul does for us here is Paul is now going to bring this section to a close. This goes all the way back to chapter 8, where Paul transitioned from talking about marriage in chapter 7, marriage, divorce, remarriage, he talked about those singleness, all that was in chapter 7. He transitioned from that in chapter 8 and said, now concerning things offered to idols. And so for three chapters, Paul concerned himself with, you know, what, what do we do? What do we do with this issue? But Paul went beyond that. Paul used this issue to provide a much bigger picture of what it looks like to restrain Christian liberty 
for the sake of being an effective witness for Christ. So this is kind of the bigger topic we've been looking at beyond just what do you do with meat that's been offered to idols. It's quite frankly, that probably doesn't sound really applicable to your life, does it? In other words, does anybody think when you go to Walmart and you pick up a package of Sanderson chicken, do you think the folks down there at, in Kinston sacrificed those chickens to a pagan idol before they packaged it, all right? Are they in there dancing and, I don't know, rat, I mean, maybe, I've never been, so maybe they are, but I think they're not, all right? So the meat that you get, you can be 100% certain your meat has not been sacrificed to an idol. So does this mean this is a whole part of the Bible I don't have to worry about? Well, again, what Paul does for us here, what's, what really what the Spirit is doing here, is providing us a case study of the kind of thing we're talking about. A potential gray area in Christian living, whereby in using this as a case study, he kind of gives us a framework for navigating through these kinds of situations. Now, up to this point, here's what Paul has said, just as a summary. Chapter 8, Paul said, well, the, the, a critical issue is to think about brotherly love. So when you're thinking about this issue, meat that's being offered to idols, don't do something that's going to offend or hurt or cause a weaker brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Then in chapter 9, Paul, using himself as an example, says, plus we also need to consider our impact for the gospel. In other words, I don't want to do anything that's going to hinder my ability to effectively share the gospel. So that means there may be some things I might be free to do, but I'm not going to do it because I want to be effective at sharing the gospel. Then chapter 10, we spent a lot of time in chapter 10 up through verse 22, where Paul now gets to the real warning, where he says, and by the way, if you really want to make sure you're covered here, I would avoid doing these things because you may be worshiping demons. That's pretty good motivation, right? And in fact, the end, in verse 22, Paul even said, do you want to provoke God to jealousy? I don't know how you answer that question, but I'm going to go with no. All right? I'm going to go with no. I don't want to provoke the Lord to jealousy. So now he kind of wraps this up, beginning in verse 23. And, and, and I think offers us then perhaps a set of questions. I mean, he... This is, this is what I'm drawing from it. Really what Paul's doing, he's offering his final instructions here to the folks in Corinth before moving on, by the way, in chapter 11, to what should women cover their heads in worship, all right? You think meat being offered to idols is weird, okay? Just wait till we get to chapter 11. It gets weirder, okay? So we're not dealing with that tonight. You can just know that is to come. So as he finishes this up, he, he returns again, what do we do with meat that's been offered to idols? And in, and in so doing, I think Paul offers us a really helpful instruction on how to face these challenging ethical situations. How do we navigate through these gray areas of Christian living? Well, I would suggest that we ask and answer five questions. So we'll get to at least one tonight, and then we'll keep going next week. Ask and answer five questions. That, that really begin to give us a picture. Should we do something, whatever the thing is, or not? So number one, you want to fill in blanks, here you go. What, the first question we should ask is, what does edification require? What does edification require? Now, I know that that's a big word, but we've heard it before in church life. In other words, 
is this something that is going to be beneficial, helpful, building up of my spiritual life and the spiritual lives of others? Or is it potentially going to be a detriment? So, looking at it from the perspective of edification, you could even say love. Looking at it from this perspective, what what will my actions, what will my words, how will they impact my spiritual growth or the growth of others? So notice how he begins here in verse 23. It, verses 23 and 24 are interesting. They almost read like a proverb. And in fact, the phrase that opens up verse 23, all things are lawful for me. Some of you should have a translation that has that in quotation marks. Anybody have a translation well, okay, well, that's in quotation marks. Maybe the New American Standard or the SV uh, have those in quotation marks. So that, and that shows up twice. And then that, that clearly seems to be, to me, the, what Paul is doing here. He's quoting a saying. All things are lawful for me. Don't misunderstand that. It's not that Paul is suggesting he can do whatever he wants. That this is probably a phrase that Paul himself had taught as a way to say, when it, when it comes to Christian liberty, when it comes to Christian freedom, and especially in light of Old Testament sacrificial, ritual, ceremonial expectations, I, I'm no longer under those things. So, so in that context, all things are lawful for me. All things are appropriate for me. He's not saying I can do whatever I want. He's not saying I can just sin however I want. It's not like that was a saying. But it does seem like the folks in Corinth had picked up on this teaching and were abusing it. That you had some who were saying, well, you don't restrain my liberty. I'm free in Christ. I'm covered by God's grace. All things are lawful for me. I can do what I want. Yeah, that's right. I can go down to the local pagan temple, and I can eat that good barbecue if I want to. All right? You, you Jews who have been converted, you go on not eating pork. I'm going to eat pork. I don't care if it bothers you or not. Because all things are lawful for me. This seems to be the spirit that was prevalent in the church in Corinth. Some of these folks were just asserting their individual liberty. Who are you to tell me what I can or can't do? Now, it's interesting because really verse 23 kind of gives a nod to this. To say, all things are lawful. In other words, yeah, if it's not clearly condemned by Scripture, then there are there is freedom. But then he adds this phrase. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. This is the classic case of asking the wrong question. I, I, I'll tell you, if you want to, if you want to begin navigating these difficult waters the right way, even navigating the clear waters, by the way, because sometimes we make bad decisions on things that are clearly right and wrong, right? I mean, we do things we know are wrong. We've done things that we, you've done things, I've done things I know was wrong. But, but, so navigating just about anything, the question should not be, can I? It's the wrong question. In all honesty, it doesn't really matter. The question is, should I? Those are two different questions, right? Can I do it? Can I, for the next two weeks, eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's for breakfast and another one for lunch and another one for dinner? You better believe I can. I'm telling you, I can put it away. You're saying, no way. Absolutely. That would be just the beginning. All right? Yeah, absolutely I can. But is that really the question I should be asking? 
No. Should I? That's the question. So when he says all things are lawful, he's not really making a point about that. Instead, he is contrasting it with what seems to be the attitude in Corinth, contrasting that attitude in Corinth with, but but is it helpful? And by adding the word edify, boy, that really draws it in to a very specific New Testament concept. The, the verb to edify is literally in its most original setting would have meant to build a house. In fact, sometimes you call a house an edifice, right? But it all goes back to the original Greek word. So to edify is to, is to build something, and Paul uses this, the New Testament uses this, in a spiritual sense. It, it translates beautifully that, that to build up, in other words, Paul's saying, so does it, does it build up? Does it promote spiritual growth? Does it help the body of Christ? Does it encourage the church? Is it something that propels somebody forward into Christ's likeness or not? Is it beneficial? And I would argue there would be two directions of this. Is it beneficial to me? Right? So in other words, if I'm thinking about a particular course of action, what I should or shouldn't do, I can ask myself, does this build me up? Does this edify? Or at the very least, maybe ask the opposite of that. Is this course of action going to stunt my spiritual growth? Is it potentially go, go, going to cause damage? And then to ask about others. What kind of impact will my actions have on others? Now, I think this last issue is what's primarily in mind here. By the way, this has been in in Paul's eye going all the way back to chapter 8. This issue of what what my actions do to others. The, The interesting thing about all of these chapters is really Paul is not expressing what we have the right to do. Paul's language is always about restraining Christian liberty, in particular for the sake of less mature believers in Christ. There could be some things that are fine, or at least they don't offend God, and perhaps perhaps I could do them. But if it's going to cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble, if it somehow is going to impact them and their spiritual growth negatively, then I shouldn't. This, by the way, is just common New Testament language. Ephesians 4.29, you could write this verse down, look it up later. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also doing. Now, just in case folks didn't really get the point, notice how Paul then, I think, digs a little bit deeper here in verse 24. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. <sighs> Are there not some verses that you you wish weren't in there? Is it wrong for me to say that kind of thing? Maybe it is. Maybe that should have just been in my head. All right? I don't know if you think 24 is hard. I think verse 24 is hard. Because you know what my natural inclination is? All about me. I love me some me. The old Dallas football player said many years ago. I love me some me. All right? That is the American spirit sometimes, by the way, is it not? Even this individualistic tendency. 
as if to say, look, what I do with my life is my business. And I don't care how it impacts you. You do your life. It's your business. The New Testament, that is a foreign idea to the New Testament, by the way. That is a foreign idea. The New Testament always presents the body of Christ as rising or falling together, as growing or not growing together. There's, there's, there's really very little room for this sense of, of, of I, I'm my own island, out, out here on my own. There's always this sense in which my view of my life, my actions, is, is with an eye toward the other people around me. Now, don't misunderstand this. When Paul says, let no one seek his own, he doesn't mean let no one ever seek his own and only ever seek the needs of others. In other words, he's not saying, all right, so if you've got a meal on your table, what you need to do is not eat it and go find somebody who doesn't have any food. I mean, maybe you could do that for a couple of meals, but I mean, that's not what he's getting at. In fact, the balance is probably found in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says essentially the same thing. Let us not look out for the interest of ourselves only, but also the interest of others. So, so he's not saying, you know, you shouldn't take care of yourself or your family. Obviously, Paul's assuming this. Instead, what he's saying about this particular kind of issue, when it comes to these kinds of, of issues in church life, about, you know, Christian liberty, Christian freedom, I've got the right to do some things, he's coming back and saying, look, it's not about you. It's not about the things you have a right to do. What you should look out for is not, do I have the right to do this? The question I should ask is, what kind of impact will this have on my brothers and sisters in Christ? Really, this is just illustrating the ethic of love, right? The New Testament ethic of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what Jesus implies by that? He's implying you do a fine job of loving yourself. You're doing a fine job of that. Love your neighbor that way. In other words, don't, don't take that verse like a lot of modern psychobabble does. Well, I can't learn to love others until I learn to love myself. What a dumb phrase. I, if you've used that, I'm sorry if that offended you, but not really. All right, don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. Don't ever, ever, ever say that. It's assuming, yeah, I understand that I love me. Love my neighbor as myself. And even, the, I mean, how many times does Paul in his letters say, love one another? Love one another. Even John and First John, we studied that book together. You remember every bit of that, right? I mean, even John says, this is a sign of salvation. Your love for your brother is evidence of salvation, and the lack of love for your brother could be evidence you're lost. It's a big deal. I, don't, I just look, look out for my own needs as, as much as that is my natural inclination. I want to look out for the needs of others. I'm telling you, this is not this is not natural in our culture. Our culture is all about me. Just look at every political controversy on the landscape. What is everybody's concern? How it impacts me. What I think about it. You want me to really tread we got a few minutes. You want me to really tread into some murky waters? Y'all ready for this? Y'all ready for me to offend every single one of you? All right? Ooh, got some attention now. All right? I just need to say two words. Confederate monuments. Every single one of you have very passionate ideas, don't you? All right? I'm wading into it, aren't I? 
Both sides, in many ways, have missed the point. At least when it comes when it comes to a biblical ethic. Because what are people saying? People are on one saying, side saying, this offends me. And what are people on the other side saying? This offends me that it offends you. What's the subject of both of those arguments? Me. Me. By the way, I don't care. All right, let me just say that. I don't care one way or the other. All right, in, in other words, I know that's going to draw the ire of some. I am certain of that, okay? I just mean that is an illustration of what is, that, what is the issue. What is the tendency in the human heart? The tendency in the human heart is to think, how does this impact me? Because that's all that matters. How it impacts me is all that matters. That's all that I should care about. If this is something that's negatively impacting me, I'm offended by it, then then something needs to be done about it because I'm not getting what I want. And there is never a view in Scripture that encourages that. Ever. Ever. Not in the church. The church is almost the antithesis of that. The church, the image of the church in the New Testament is all about what am I doing for the sake of my brother and sister in Christ? And Paul himself has said more than once, there's a lot of things I'm willing to not do in order to be a blessing to those who may be less mature than me. I'm telling you, church, I think this is a big deal. And I think and I think this is probably a great place to stop because in a lot of ways, this may be the most difficult issue of all. When I'm thinking about these issues, I need to ask the question. So what does edification tell me here? What if if I go ahead and if I've got A or B, if I go ahead and do this thing, is that, is that going to be beneficial, helpful? Is that going to be the building up of others? And and if and if I and if I'm asking this question, I say, you know what? If I continue to do this thing. It, it, it only drags weaker brothers or sisters in Christ into potentially dangerous and sinful places. Guess what I shouldn't do? That thing. That thing. Again, I know that's that can be hard for us. That can be hard for us to, to think this way. It's hard for me to think this way. Because you want to talk about somebody who is skilled at justifying his actions. <laughs> all right? This guy. This guy right here. Okay? I mean, I spend all of my time talking, so I can talk to myself and talk myself and all kinds of stuff, all right? It's a challenging issue. What would edification say? All right, so next week, uh, we'll move ahead, and we're going to move ahead into a a section of this. This is really odd. And some of the phrasing here is tricky to kind of nail down, so we'll do our best to work through what the options are. But but Paul's really fundamentally now going to turn away from all right, so does this edify? And then he's going to ask the question, what will this do to conscience? What will, what will it do to your conscience? What will it do to the conscience of somebody else? And there are some difficult phrases coming up as well. As Paul then talks about, what, what will my actions say uh, about my witness? What will my actions say about the mission? Uh, and, and he even has this, this phrase in verse 32 where he says, Give offense to no one. What does he mean by that? And what does he mean then when Paul himself says, I've offended no one? Because I'm thinking, I don't know, you've offended me. I don't know, like 55 times in the book already, alright? I've been offended all through the book of 1 Corinthians, not the least to say Romans, okay? So what does he mean What does he mean by this? These are the issues that we'll struggle with. Hold on to this outline, uh, because we'll, we'll pick back up with it next week. Uh, and... Uh, 
And you, you'll want to come back next week. You, you think I picked on you about that issue just a minute ago. You just wait. As I look ahead in my notes and think, we got a doozy coming next week. All right, so you'll want to be here for that, right? Next, uh, next Wednesday, and we'll turn our attention again to navigating these difficult issues. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us here tonight. We are, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, the way it does bring clarity to situations. We, we confess we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We want to be faithful uh, to your word, to you. Lord, we also want to be faithful to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So God, give us uh, that kind of sensitivity. Help us to see our actions in light of how it may impact others. And how it, is it beneficial? Is it helpful? Does it edify? And may, may, we, may we take the better road here as we are confronted with these issues. Lord, I just thank you for these who've come out tonight. What a blessing it is. How encouraging it is to be with God's people. That, that these folks would come out in the middle of the week, would pray together, study your word together. I just pray each and every one would know your wisdom, your guidance, your strength, your blessing on their lives. Go with us as we leave from here. Surrender ourselves to you. Use us for your own sake, for the glory of your name. And gather your people back together again. We might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.